Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Views on View. This week on our panel, we have Dean. Uh, <laughs> I always stutter on your name, man. That's Vensky. Vensky. That's what I want to say. And then I'm like, is that right? <laughs> Those darn Polish names. Yes, from cloudy New Zealand, Christchurch, New Zealand today. Nice. We have Austin Gill. Hey, coming in from San Diego. Lindsay Wardell. Hello from sort of snowy Portland. Steve Edwards. Well, also from cold and sort of snowy Portland and being jealous of Austin. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this is going to be our 100th episode of Views on View. Woohoo! All right. Yeah. Hooray! Springboard offers the first online, self paced software engineering bootcamp with a job guarantee. Become a software engineer or get your money back. You'll be mentored by senior software engineer or technical leader who has worked at companies like Microsoft, Intuit, and Amazon. Springboard has helped graduates increase their salary by an average $25,000 a year. Make a risk-free investment in yourself and apply now. For a limited time, use the code JABBER, unique to our podcast listeners, to get $500 off the course. That's springboard.com. We've been a panel together for, what, a couple months? And yeah, uh, yeah anyway, it's, it's been kind of an interesting ride with Views on View. So I'm kind of curious as we get rolling, if you have any questions about kind of the history of views on view or, you know, anything that you want to make sure that we talk about. I mean, I myself can remember, I think when you first put out a question to, I think on Twitter or whatever your different channels are about, okay, what other podcasts do you like to see? I was the first, one of the first people that got back to you and said, let's do view. We got to do view. Yeah. I think I had a few people respond about view Funny enough, when I started the show, we started two other shows at the same time. And those two shows were the ones that I got the most feedback that people wanted. One was Elixir and the other one was React. And so, yeah, I got a whole bunch of feedback. And then Joe Eames was the one that pushed me into doing the View podcast. Oh, here I thought it was all me. Dang it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's interesting, too, because Joe really hasn't been on any of the shows for a while. He's busy getting Thinkster.io started up, so... Anyway, it's kind of interesting, but yeah, we we pulled it together. Joe knew Cher Stewart, and so we got her on. And then Eric Hanchett came from another group of people that I'm connected to. And so we kind of started out with, I think, just the three or four of us. And then um, Chris Fritz was on episode like two or three, and we invited him to keep coming. And so he started coming. That's kind of how things started going. Yeah, it seems like the the hosts kind of were pretty stable for a while and kind of got shook up few weeks ago or a few months ago, I should say. Yeah. And I don't know if I want to go into all of that. I know some people are curious and, uh, you know, I have no problem, you know, telling people they have decided to start their own show. I haven't seen any episodes for it. I think it's enjoytheview.io if you want to go check it out and get on their mailing list for that. Okay. Fair enough. So we did have a pretty good run with those hosts and, you know, talked about a lot of different things in view. It's kind of interesting, though, having a new panel or new panelists because you all bring something different, right? And so even if we talk about the same topics, we're going to come from a different place with our experience level and things like that. So that's been fun to dive into. Yeah. I've actually been curious because I I listened to the latest Views on View, which I wasn't a panelist on yesterday. And it it was, uh, I forget her name, but she's new to View and she was a React developer. Miriam. Was that Miriam? Miriam? Yeah. That's it. That's it. And it got me thinking, how, how many of us are like daily view drivers? Like that's the only technology we work on, we work on. Because me personally, I have like a, a pretty regular gig, which is React. But then all my personal freelance projects are pretty much dedicated to view because I enjoy working in view more. So I'm curious to, to hear if other people get to jump technology as much as I do, or if it's pretty much all view. We weep for your regular gig. I'm sorry. And I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to throw a chart of heresy out there, but I decided against it. There we go. Yeah. We're going to throw Dean into the pond. And if he floats, then he's a witch. So I kind of dabble in a lot of things, but yeah, I'm curious where everyone else is at. I really liked having someone like Dean on the show because, or, the person that's doing kind of react full time and then choosing to do view in your free time, that's uh, clearly a sign that you have a breadth of knowledge in both options. And in your free time, you're choosing to, to use view because you enjoy it more. 
Whereas I think people that got into the framework or got into a, yeah, a framework to begin with and have stuck with that and then look at another framework or library and, and they kind of don't like it. A lot of that decision comes from, well, I'm just used to what I know mm-hmm. and that's what I'm faster with and therefore I consider it better, right? But if you have, you know, if you're constantly jumping between the two, it's like you have a very informed opinion on which one works better for you. Yeah, I've, I've always been a huge proponent of the thought, uh, the right tool for the right job. I mean, I guess I started off as a DBA many, many years ago and eventually fell into a PHP programming role purely because our PHP program had stopped coming to the office and we had projects that had to get out. So I kind of got forced into it and I had some programming knowledge from messing around with QBasic back in the day, if you can believe it. And just a lot of people have been against PHP over the year and given it a bad rap, but I kind of feel PHP is one of those languages where if it's done right, it can be done really well, but it all just depends on the job. So I've kind of switched between Node, Go, PHP, and Python for backend languages, depending on what I'm doing. But yeah, I was an Angular developer for a long time and purely because of how productive I was for it. And I, I mentioned to this to Chuck on my interview for Pamela's, but one of my biggest criteria is, can I get more done in the same amount of time than I can with the previous technology? And mm-hmm. Vue is what just took my productivity to another level. Uh, Angular did it for me when Angular first came out. And then Vue was the first one that I felt really strongly that it did that again, but also just made things better. I'm sort of in the, in the same boat as you, Dean, in that, uh, and I'm, you know, I've mentioned this before on, you know, my, my JavaScript story and, and their podcast, but I got into open source uh, with PHP via Drupal and was in the Drupal world for quite a long time. And I started learning Angular 1, so what's called, what's referred to as Angular JS now, when I started seeing it being integrated into Drupal um, and did a bunch of work there. And then when 2 came out, I started looking around again in Angular 2. It's up to, I don't know what it's up to now. And sort of nine. Well, almost nine. Yeah. So anyway, but I settled on view and was doing a lot of my own projects with it and, you know, playing around with it and really liked it. And eventually they will end at a job uh, last year where now I get to do view uh, full time. So yeah, I've had the background experience with PHP and other backend stuff. And, you know, I told Chuck once that uh, when I was still doing Drupal, a lot of times, you know, Everything was a, a nail and Drupal was my hammer because that was all I had. And so now with something like this, with Vue, I can, you know, tie it to any number of different backends, you know, not be just tied to one whole whole monolith like uh, like it was back in Drupal. And, you know, Drupal itself is, has really embraced the API first type of mentality, realizing it can be used as a backend in a decoupled format quite a bit. But anyway, yeah, it's... I learned Vue by choice and just because of what I, how easy, easily I was able to learn it and the types of things that I was able to do with it. Absolutely. It's interesting, too, that you both brought up PHP because I've talked to a number of people and it seems like a lot of people are coming in through Laravel and that that's, that's been a big driver for Vue. Do any of you do Laravel? Oh, I have a, a love-hate relationship with Laravel. <laughs> <laughs> But by that, I mean everyone loves to tell me about it and I hate it. <laughs> uh, no, I, I know it has a really strong place and it does amazing things. But just, I guess, I saw it in PHP 3. So oh, wow. that, the, the amount of, yeah, I know, <laughs> so long ago. The amount of, I guess, what, what would you call it? Boilerplate code that Laravel generates and that. And, and I know there's a, there's a need for it. I know it's there for a reason, but. I get very lost just going through piles and piles of files. And it's one of the things I appreciate about Vue that that you can get stuff going. I think I'm a, I think my first Vue experience was actually including it as a just a regular JavaScript include on a PHP app and just building out a table that you with pagination. And that's where I was like, oh man, this just reminds me of the good old days of JavaScript. Um, obviously, these days you use Vue CLI and you compile your code. Um, so I don't do Vue like that anymore, but it was just refreshing to be able to do that. So it piqued my interest in Vue and then um, led me to like use it a bit more now. I mean, I do React daily, but I do Vue 
daily as well because I've got plenty of contracts that I work on that that are view based and yeah, it's just a pleasure to work with. Yeah, one of my neighbors is a big Laravel guy, and it's kind of funny because for a while there he would come and he, he would try and convince me to you should be doing Laravel, and I'm like, well, why? And he'd be like, oh, well, it has this great feature in it, and I'd look at him and I say, Rails invented that. I'm not switching. But yeah, it was Laracast, the, apparently the guy that does that, and I can't remember his name, but he he's done a bunch of series on Vue. That's where that's come over. And so a lot of the popularity, if you're doing Laravel and you're using a front-end framework, you're almost certainly going to be doing Vue. And it's just because he has shown people how to do that, and he's he's extremely well-known in the Laravel community. So... Yeah, I think oh, you're definitely right about that. That's pretty much the go-to front-end framework for Laravel. Yeah. Anyway, I was curious if anyone had that background or if it was, you know, because I'd like to talk to some folks that have come through that and possibly even uh, talk to the author here. If I, I can't remember his name for the life of me, but anyway. Taylor Otwell's the author. Yeah, there you go. I almost ended up using Laravel at my last job. When I built the application, I had taken a break from development for a while. So the last thing I knew was straight PHP, no framework. And I knew that jQuery existed. So when I was building the prototype for the application we wanted to build, I built it in straight PHP and jQuery. And as I was building it out, I was like, this PHP that I'm building is not quite what is working. And then Mm -hmm. I found Laravel and was like, hmm, that looks interesting. Oh, look, it does this. So it does that, whatever. But then I found Node and just stuck with JavaScript. Yeah, there's something to be said there too. A lot of people talk about code sharing. Um, my experience has been that it doesn't really happen the way that people want it to. Have you all experienced anything where you, you actually do share code between the front and back end? I have a couple small libraries that I would use between the front end and the back end, but I didn't get the full benefit of code sharing like people talk about. I think for me, my main benefit comparing PHP and JavaScript was the syntax for doing certain things was one way in JavaScript and one way in PHP. Mm. And if I spent enough time in the back end, I'd have to go and look it up how to do it in JavaScript and vice versa. So just by having a single language for the back end and the front end, just eliminated that and I was able to be more productive. That makes sense. Yeah, the only time I've really done code yeah. sharing is the like using a library that I share that I use on both in like Lodash or something like that. Mm-hmm. I hear about people doing it with business logic, but and that makes sense to me too, but... The React application I worked on at my current job, the most I would share is TypeScript types, I think. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think I shared anything else. Yeah, and even if you're doing server rendering, it's rendering your front-end code, so... Right, exactly. You're not really sharing code there. Well, I, I was doing a Next.js application, so there, mm-hmm. was, there was a bit of type sharing between the front and back, but it wasn't oh, that much. So I'm also curious how you all found Views on View. Like, how, how did you come across the show the first time? So me personally, um, I've listened to JavaScript Jabber and like my, my JavaScript story for, geez, probably about four four years now. And when I got into Vue, I just kept my eyes open for a Vue podcast and that what came up. I use a Stitcher as my the, mm-hmm. my main way of, of consuming. So, yeah. You're one of a handful of people. I check those stats. Okay. We don't have that many listeners on Stitcher. Okay. Maybe they just don't like your shows, Chuck. Yeah, maybe. That was a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Austin, how did you find it? Yeah, I think I got kind of a similar story. I'm pretty sure I started with JavaScript Jabber for the devchat.tv stuff. I know that I got into Vue and then got into podcasts and was looking into like Vue podcasts. So there's a couple out there like the the Vue News podcast and the Mm -hmm. Views on Vue. The only two I think I could find that were Vue specific. But I listened to like, I don't know, 10 different programming podcasts. Oh, interesting. Maybe I'll ask that next. How about you, Lindsay? So I was looking it up as you were talking. I started listening to JavaScript Jabber in 2018. Looks like the first one was number 315. It was in May. Uh And then I was like, oh, there's a JavaScript podcast. That's great. I wonder if there's Vue because I had started on Vue at the same time. And I found Views on Vue. It took me a couple episodes to connect the JavaScript Jabber and Views on Vue were the same network. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's something I need to pay attention to. I don't know. I I don't remember why it took that much. Before that, I'd just been listening to things like on twit.tv, so Uh just general general tech news. So branching out, looking at other networks, I didn't know 
there were even other podcasting networks like this. So that's why it took me a bit. Once I realized you were talking on both of them, Chuck, it was like, oh yeah, this is great. See, I started with Views on View. I think it was number 22 about how I became a Vue.js core team member. Oh yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. So, and then I started going in through the backlog and trying to find other ones. Yeah, it makes sense. How about you, Steve? Well, I started out with listening to your stuff with uh, Adventures in Angular when I was doing AngularJS and then got into JavaScript Jabber. And then when I was doing Vue, you put out the, the question to users as to what new podcast you'd like to see. And so uh, I just kept my eyes open for it and jumped on it when I saw that uh, you were doing a Views on Vue podcast. Nice. Yeah, it's always interesting to hear how people find us and things like that. I'm curious now, you know, after Austin brought it up, what, what other programming podcasts do you all listen to? Oh, man, I got a ton. Yeah, I'm pulling <laughs> up my phone right now. And yeah, so I'm going to pull mine up too. So I know that I'm subscribed to the Changelog, JavaScript Jabber, Views on View, the View News podcast, Shop Talk, the Web Ahead, the Web Platform podcast, Modern Web, Tools Day, Software Engineering, Software Engineering Radio, Front End Happy Hour, Full Stack Radio, Syntax, and then there's the stuff that's non-tech related. Yeah, and they're all really good. I mean, the stuff that like like Syntax that West Boss and Scott Talinsky mm-hmm. put out, that's a lot of fun. Those guys are, you know, yeah. they have a lot of uh, a lot of rapport. And then JavaScript Jabber, I like a lot. That's also really good. Um, yeah, they've got some great panelists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And oh yeah, JS Party. JS Party is also really good. Like I really like um K Ball and everyone else on that crew. And then uh the syntax and shop talk are two that are really interesting, but also like I feel like some of the other episodes have very opinionated people or people with different opinions. And shop talk and syntax feel like they kind of they're both teams are on the same like length so they just kind of agree with a lot of things mm-hmm. um which can be good or bad it's like really interesting to get that those insights though yeah i listened i think everything that he listed there did you say real talk javascript i did not john Poppin, dan Wallin. yeah that's been out for almost a year now i'm not sure yeah i really like that one i mean i know john used to be on some of the dev chat podcasts i know yeah, he, was he used on to angular. be on adventures in angular yeah he was on adventures in angular Adam Wadden's Full Stack Radio, I really like. Uh, he does a pretty good job with that one. He really gets into de- detail whenever he's talking to somebody, like really down in the weeds. And then uh, the What's My Jam, I forget the, forget the guy. Then That's My Jam Stack, excuse me, uh, Brian Robinson. Uh, both of those are sort of Jam Stack focused. That one, his are usually really short. They're like, you know, 15 minutes or something like that. So not a lot of detail. Dev Mode FM, let's do once in a while. I got a bunch of other ones that I haven't listened to real regularly, uh, like Coder Radio, uh, Software Engineering Daily. He gets that's a daily one. There's no way I keep up with that one. They're they're all pretty long. Yeah, I find that Indie Hackers uh, with Cortland, uh, I forget his last name, Cortland Allen, get some really interesting stories out of that. You know, the whole uh, gist of that one is people who started their own companies and gotten going successfully, and the whole story behind how they started things up and. And, you know, what happened along the way? Did they fail? Did they succeed? So on, you just get some really fascinating backstories behind sometimes, you know, rather well-known startups. I'm really glad I didn't have to go after Steve because basically just like listed every, <laughs> every engineering podcast available. Yeah. <laughs> well, not every engineering, just most of them focus towards, you know, JavaScript and web development. I've got a couple you don't when we get there. All right, yeah, I'm done. I think we just got there. So. In addition to what everyone's been saying, I've got the Ladybug podcast. Yeah, I've um, heard about that one. I've only listened to one episode so far, and then they went on break. So it was good. <laughs> and, I'm, and I've got the next one ready to listen to as soon as I finish what I was listening to at the moment. What's the focus uh, of that show? It's just general development stuff. So the current episode is tips for developers in 2020. Last one was speaking at conferences. Okay. Web performance, debugging 101. So general stuff. I'm always curious how those general ones fare against the more specific ones. So I like to have a combination of the specific ones and the general ones. General ones I listen to during work. So if they say something that I can use at work, I've got it. And otherwise, it's a really nice thing to listen to while I'm programming. Mm -hmm. And then more specific ones are for the ride home. Gotcha. 
So I've got that one. Did anyone mention JS Party? I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, we did. Okay. And then I've got Elmtown, if you like Elm programming language. And that one is not every week, unfortunately, just because there's not a ton to talk about, I'm guessing. But I've been enjoying Elm, so learning about it's always fun. And then when I want to learn about .NET, there's .NET Rocks. Mm-hmm. And that one's pretty good. Yeah, we started at uh, .NET 1 last year. I'll have to check that one out, too. Yeah, Adventures in .NET. And then I have one last one. I spent a couple years in Brazil, and I learned Portuguese. And one of the ways I like to keep up on it is listening to people talking in Portuguese. So I have a Portuguese podcast called Lambda 3, uh, or Lambda 3, which I think is a company in Brazil, and they talk all about front-end web development. Oh, that's interesting. So it's all in Portuguese, though. Yeah, well, it kind of made me think, because I spent a couple of years in Italy, I would love to keep up on it. I wind up talking to Italians periodically because we get them on the shows when they do interesting stuff in tech. And I always feel so rusty when I talk to them. Yeah. Hey, Chuck, uh, we can speak Italian. Parli italiano. <laughs> si, mi ragazza è italiana. Ah, che bello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, show just took a turn. Yeah, I'll throw in my Spanish and we can inter- understand each other for the most part. Go. Yeah. I can speak Afrikaans and no one can understand me. <laughs> yeah i i bought a japanese course on audible so i'm wanting to work through that that's fun it's funny that like with programming you learn so many languages and then i don't know where i'm going with this just the the cross section between programming languages and non-programming languages and spoken languages or written languages oh, yeah yeah it's like oh how many languages do you know well a few yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's also a really interesting crossover between musicians, I found, and programmers. That makes sense. You guys, so, have you tried uh, listening to uh, Lex Friedman? He's um, like a, a YouTuber uh, with podcasts. And guys, uh, yes, guests like uh, Elon Musk, Donald Knut, uh, Jim Gates, um, mostly uh, physicists, mathematicians, and data scientists. And they've been, they've been uh, geeking out about space all sort of uh, uh, interesting things and programming languages. Kind of interesting because of, you know, his guess as well. That does sound interesting. Yeah, uh, guys like uh, Michio Kaku, uh-huh. Kasparov. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. What was that again? What was that one called? Uh, Lex Friedman. Mm-hmm. So do they talk about like very high level computer science stuff on that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I, I can't keep up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I have like traditionally a much more front-end focus. Like I came into web development with WordPress and doing a lot of you know HTML and CSS stuff and then sprinkling in the JavaScript and then eventually JavaScript just took over the whole stack. And so coming from that background, like I didn't study computer science. And so when I get into conversations with people that are actually study like math or data science or all these things and and get into these very high level concepts or when you talk about like functional programming and how transducers are an aspect of traditional mathematics it's like it's really weird how programming can can go from something that's a very like visual thing like we're laying out a front end all the way up to these super abstract concepts of like types and and sorting and algorithms and all that. So it's always cool to listen to those people, even if I can't keep up. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. Especially some uh, uh, programming language authors like Begon Strusup. It's one of uh, his uh, guests. So yeah, kind of mind boggling sometimes what they're talking about. Nice. So uh, I'm curious where you all see Vue going here in the future. I know that we're coming up on uh, a new release of Vue, but... Yeah, is anyone going to ViewConf this year? Yeah, I put in the request. We'll see if it's actually going to happen, but uh, I'd really like to. Yeah, I got to take it. I just I just bring that up because I'm, I'm calling it now, putting it out on the public. View 3 is going to align with ViewConf, and it's going to be re- released at ViewConf. Nice. Putting my money on the table, calling it. It's going to be wonderful. That would be good timing. Yeah. We should set you guys up so you can record while you're down there because I will not be able to go. The timing is terrible for me. 
And it's a good yeah, it'll be fun. I've never been to Austin, and everyone always asks if I'm from there because for some reason, if your name is Austin, people just assume that you were named after the city you were born in or something. <laughs> it's really weird. They're like, it's like one of the strangest social interactions I have. Is like, hey, what's up? My name's Austin. They're like, oh, are you from Austin? It's like, no. What kind of parent would do that? <laughs> I know, right? Like, no. <laughs> Now, considering some of the kids' names I've heard over my lifetime, that wouldn't surprise me too much. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I don't judge you if you're from Austin and you name your child Austin. Anyway, sorry for derailing us once again. No, it's all good. But yeah, podcast PodFest is basically the handful of days after ViewConf. And my wedding anniversary is the last day of ViewConf. So I am doing stuff with my wife instead of hanging out with you all. At you didn't get her tickets to ViewConf? Oh, there no. you go. Two birds with one stone, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually hoping to be able to do that with PodFest. PodFest is in Orlando. I'll hopefully be in Orlando with my wife during ViewConf. You know, going to amusement parks and stuff. <laughs> anyway, because she's That's put cool. up with my crap for 15 years. So, But are you going to do a podcast while you're on the ride? No. <laughs> nope. Just the wind blowing by. It's like, hey, everybody. Ah. Yeah. So to get back to your question, Chuck, in terms of where View is going, <laughs> I think we sort of have soft rails here, not hard rails, so it's easy to get off the rails. Yeah. I know with View three, there's the new uh, API that's being added in, and I forget there's a name for it, and off the top of my head, I forget what it's called. The so composition API. Composition API. There you go. Thank you. And so you know that'll be a new thing. It'll be interesting to see how that takes off. And I know that, you know, based on all the, the feedback that was generated when this was first proposed, a lot of blowback, I think, is more likely. I know that, you know, there's no backwards compatibility issues, at least with View 3. I'll be curious to see if eventually they do deprecate the current method and, you know, go full on with Composition API down the road. Yeah, that's entirely possible. I think it just depends on what they need to optimize and what it'll cost them to maintain backward compatibility while they do it. So it sounds like all the APIs for the composition interface are already there. It's just mm-hmm. a different way to access them. So I don't see why they would get rid of the options API anytime soon. I'm hoping it'll stick around personally. Yeah. I mean long term in theory you could probably have a lighter library or framework if you got rid of support for both. True. But I don't know, like it's, I mean, the the, the framework itself, at, at some point, like less bundle size, it's a, uh, what is it? It's like, it follows the law of diminishing returns, right? Like, yeah, you know, these frameworks or libraries can fight over, oh, well, ours is lighter and ours is faster. But at some point, they're just going to be so light or so fast that it just doesn't make enough of a difference. So I think having the, like maintaining the options API and the composition API would be a good move going forward because the options API, one of the selling points of view is that it's so easy for non-JavaScript experts to get in and get going and, and get to a, a productive state quickly. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It would be nice if they kept it. And I think they probably will. I mean, in a sense, they've I'm, been keeping multiple APIs anyway because we've got the, the template stuff and then you can do a render function instead if you wanted to. So they are maintaining multiple ways of doing things in the current view setup. Well, yeah, no, you're right. I think if they have a compelling reason down the road, then they may get rid of it. But especially because like tree shaking and build processes are getting better about removing that stuff anyway. So, you you know, maybe there will be a build flag or something you can put on it in the CLI and then it just drops all that stuff out if you're not using it. Yeah. But then it's there for the people that want it. So you could always like deprecate it and have like an opt-in option to make it no longer backwards compatible by default and then have a plugin sort of the way the, the composition API works today where you have a plugin that opts you into using the composition API you could have a backwards compatible API or plugin yeah we'll see well the other thing is is that I mean they could also go the angular the way the angular did it eventually and just say look you know we're going to offer long-term support as long as it makes sense I mean they supported angular angular js or angular one for several years after they released the current version or the current iteration of Angular. And so they could do that too. And then essentially, you know, back off when it's like, you know what, we have fewer and fewer people using this. So, you know, now we're going to deprecate it. Yeah. 
One of the most popular pairings for Vue on the front end is Laravel or PHP on the back end. If you're setting up and running a PHP app, then why hassle with all the backend config? Instead, count on Cloudways. Cloudways provide the solution that will have you up and running quickly. They offer exceptional performance and reliability and 24-7 support. So your website or your web app, which is probably crucial to your business, will run in an environment designed for it. Go run it on Cloudways. If you use the code DEVCHAT, you'll get 30% off for three months. If I could switch topics a bit, I'm really curious to see how state management is going to go forward with Vue after, after version three comes out because you know there's a lot of people out there that are playing with the Composition API and, and I've seen a couple Vuex alternatives for the Composition API, but then there's also things like, I've been using um, GraphQL at work and so with the project that we're building, we actually haven't even implemented like a Vuex store yet. And we're just using Apollo client with the caching layer as kind of the, the state management solution. So I don't know if any of you have any or have heard anything about like state management solutions or what's going to happen with UX or whatever as, as version three comes out. You know, I'm looking up some different posts and stuff on new things coming in view and you're going to see stuff like uh, suspense and some additional TypeScript support and fragments, but I haven't seen anything in regards to changes for state management for Vue 3. Um, I know I have heard, you know, I did a, a workshop a couple months ago on GraphQL and did some playing with it in Vue. And I know there's, I know about Apollo caching, haven't had a chance to play with it yet. So I know it's an option, but that's the only other option I've really heard of for Vuex for state management. I'm assuming that, you know, with the composition API, that's not going to break any, any uh, links with Vuex. But in all the listening and reading, I've, I've never heard any references to Vuex changes for V3. I don't know if Vuex is going to change or if it'll break the support for working with Vuex, but I think it's going to change the need for Vuex in an, in a, in an app. Because in theory, like you would have, you could pull out these state management little component things into their own, like sort of like the React hooks. You can kind of pull or I don't know, are they called view hooks? I don't remember what they're called, but basically the composite the features of the composition API are a way to make like these refs or these functions and that can are like reactive little stores on their own. And then you can import and export those sort of like what we have today with like an event bus. So in theory, you wouldn't even need a Vuex library as a as a store. You just kind of have your little individual component stores floating around. Does that make sense? I think my guess is that what's going to happen with Vue and Vuex is the same that's happened with React and Redux, where they've got Redux, then they have Apollo, and then there's the React context API for global state management. So I would guess there's something like that where you, where you have an event bus, which sounds really interesting to me. I'd like to check that out, holding the global state for all the components instead of something like Vuex. That's what happened with the React ecosystem. Now they've got a few different ways of doing global state management. Well, and it seems like, you know, we kind of saw React pioneer some of the stuff that's gone into Vue, React, and Angular as far as like components and, you know, the way that we uh, put stuff together. Yeah, the next big, I think, area where we're looking for solutions is state management. And so it'll be interesting to see if something happens in one of the other ecosystems and then gets adopted over because it solves some of the messy issues that we deal with right now with state management anyway. Yeah, my hope will just be that they keep going down the path they have to date where it's just, it's one of the things that attracts me to view is is the fact that there is an opinionated router and then the state management. I definitely don't have a problem with them doing something aside from Vuex, so long as it is, I guess, slightly opinionated from the, the view, de- view developers where they kind of encourage a specific way to do it. And if the composition API can do that, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All for having someone else make the decisions and have the opinions. Just tell me how to write it and I'll do it. Yeah, well, it's also interesting just looking at it because, you know, sometimes it feels like a solution like Vuex is overkill. You know, you don't have that much data that you're managing in your app. And then sometimes it seems like it's the perfect solution. So it'll be interesting too to see if there's, you know, some middle ground between just having a really simple object that you have in memory or just managing it through the API because that's fast enough versus you know having this solution where you have all the data 
in the front end in Vuex and it does all the things that it does. We may see other solutions that solve it in a different way because we have different concerns. So uh, what should we be covering in the next 100 episodes? <laughs> libraries, third-party libraries. Third-party libraries? Yeah. I'm sure we've done an episode on Beautify, but uh, Beautify has changed significantly. That's always a really good UI library to cover. I'm actually using that right now on my big project here at work. So I'm using 1.5 and 2.2 something, I think, is the most current version. But I was looking through past episodes, and I don't think we've done anything on Beautify, Chuck. So that would be a good one. might be a good one. I think every good show has someone with an opposite opinion, and I'll I'll be glad to be that person on that show. Yeah, you know, we'll have to you, line that up. We use it at work as well, so I have a lot of experience with it, and it's really well done. Like I think that the the library authors did a great job, but it's just so much. I don't know. I it's just I like having my own design, my own style, and a bit more flexibility. Yeah, I heard about this great e library called Viewtensils. Do you know anything about that, Austin? Get out of here. <laughs> no, I heard about it. I heard the author is, uh, he doesn't know what he's doing. That one works pretty well with particle CSS, right? <laughs> oh, particles. Yeah, don't even get me started on that. <laughs> but that's the point, right? It's like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't want to go off on, on the tangent here again. <laughs> I think it's a great discussion, though, to have because, you know, all these libraries have a place, but every now and then, like, we get too... I guess, hooked or dependent on them. And I think the differing opinions and are, are good because, and I think what, what might be a good thing to dive into in future episodes is the full process and scenarios where these libraries are good or not good, because I think that's probably a big challenge for junior developers coming in. They, they I mean, I've been in development for like 25 years now. So I see a lot of like the kind of thought processes coming in and different kinds of developers. A great example was I worked with a young guy straight out of, college in the US and he needed to understand everything. He had an electrical engineering background and he needed to understand how anything worked before he actually used it. And we were doing Angular development at the time and I got him started on work. And then after about a few days, I checked in with him and and he hadn't really made any progress on actual work. And I'm like, what are you doing? What's going on? So I sat down with him and deep dived into him and he was like, I'm going through the Angular source code. And I'm like, whoa, 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 we don't need to understand how (laughs) Angular works. Let's just use it. He couldn't wrap his head around it. But at the same time, I think that that there are places where that's justifiable and you need to know what what you're getting into before you start including it in your project. It just depends on the scenario. Like if I was working, like all my view projects are freelance projects. So they're around for a few months and obviously there's maintenance cut after that, but they all have pretty unique needs. So it's really difficult for me to put my put effort into building my own UI library and that kind of stuff because everything's so different. But if I was working on one project, I knew I was going to work on it for a good three, four years, probably wouldn't want to use something like Beautify. I'd want to have complete fine control over every piece of CSS that's in the system or every component. You know, I can really empathize with the guy that you were talking about. And I've talked about this on another podcast. They all run together after a while, Chuck. But uh, (laughs) tell me about it. uh, (laughs) Just the idea that... I like to know how everything works behind the scenes, what's the little details of how it's implemented. So partially just because I want to know, but partially because once I know something, then I can, you know, understand how to use it better. And maybe, oh, I can use it this way where somebody, you know, hasn't considered that before. And the example I like to give is learning language. You know, I, I started learning Spanish in high school and I have an affinity for picking up languages and Spanish was one of the easiest things I ever learned. And I still use it to this day. I spent some time living in Mexico and I still get chances to, you know, to speak it. And it's always come naturally to me. But, you know, when you learn a language, there's, I've seen a couple different ways to do it. One is like I did it where you go into class and you learn, okay, here's how verbs work. Here's how they're conjugated. Here's the different forms of the verbs. You know, here's your, uh, how nouns work and pronouns and adjectives and so on and so forth. And then you sort of put it together and to speak. And then the other approach is the conversational method where, you know, conversational Spanish classes I've seen where you go in and you, here's how you generally use the word, here are the words to use in this situation. I'd be going nuts with something like that. Well, how is that conjugated? Why does that work that way? And so on and so forth. So, you know, I like to know the basics, the nuts and bolts, what are the bricks that are used to put together to make the building? And so 
Now, when I've come into JavaScript, I came in not knowing really a lot of JavaScript, you know, the nuts and bolts as I would like to. You know, I started with Angular, then I switched to Vue. And as I've used them more, I've dug more and more into the, the details of JavaScript. And, you know, for instance, I used to use Lodash quite a bit. Once I became aware of Lodash, I would use it a lot on a particular Angular JS project. And as I've gone on, and I'll, I'll see this when I, for instance, if I ask a question on Stack Overflow, how are you going to do this with Lodash? And people will come back and say, well, you really don't need Lodash. You can do it with plain JavaScript like this, you know, whether it's filtering or sorting by dates, because a lot of stuff has been added to the, to the ECMAScript spec to handle that. So where before I would, you know, use Vue Framework and then I'd throw in something like maybe Bootstrap or Beautify or Bulma or something like that, as I've gotten to learn behind the scenes things, how things are work, how they're put together. And then I've learned stuff like CSS Grid and Bootstrap, excuse me, CSS Grid and Flexbox. Now I'm to the point where I'm having to build a website for a nonprofit that uh, I, you know, that I'm associated with. And they had a, a WordPress site that was just sort of thrown together. And so I'm literally building a theme from scratch using uh, CSS Grid and a little bit of Flexbox here and there, piecing the whole thing together just to copy like copying one that I found that had Bootstrap and a whole bunch of other libraries thrown into it. And then piecing together the back end for trying to find a CMS and then using Vue on the front end, which is some straight theming. I feel a lot better. I feel more in control because I know how everything is put together and I'm putting it together myself, which has given me you know, a real good experience. So, so the way I see it, and I've heard this from other people who do design and theming on a professional level, full-time level, is that, yeah, Bootstrap's great, Beautify's great, but a lot of times they end up fighting it more than actually just implementing it because, yeah, it gets me, you know, the rule in Drupal is, you know, site building, you can do things through modules 80% of the way, but then you need to custom do the remaining 20%. And so they see that with these frameworks. Yeah, it gets me here, but then I'm having to overwrite it because I want it to do something different than it wants to do. And, and mm. you almost lose your um, efficiency because of all the time you spend overwriting it. So all that to say, yeah, stuff like that is great, depending on where you're at and what your skill set is. But I think as more people get very experienced and know everything behind the scenes, then you start seeing stuff where like um, Adam Wathen's Tailwind CSS or Vue Tensils, you know, where you've got just the bare bones stuff behind the scenes and then you piece it all together to create your, your final product. Did all that make yeah. sense? I ranted for a while though. <laughs> No, I think like the the point that you touched on that that hits the hardest for me is you know I'm I'm coming from a background or or my current position where we have we're using View Viewify but we have some custom design stuff right and so it's it's hitting hard where you're talking about yeah the library gets me eighty percent of where I need to go but then I ha- I lose all that productivity because I have to undo some things or overwrite some things or just like make some thing like like put in my the, the custom design part or the custom functionality part into what the library already does. And I think the issue that I have with it is I always value learning the actual language, right? So if we're talking about specifically like a view layout library like Beautify or View Bootstrap or whichever whichever other one you want to list, what I end up with is on a on any given page is a page component that's made up of all of these custom view components. And I don't actually see the markup that they're presenting. So I don't actually learn what the HTML is. And that's fine for me because I, I've been doing this long enough and writing enough HTML and CSS. I know how the language works under, under the hood, right? I can see, I can inspect the source and, and, and see that. And I can check out the CSS that's output and I can, I can see what it's doing. But working with some some of the junior developers that are on my team, this becomes an issue because then I'll ask a simple question. Like, let's say we have an application that if you go to the homepage, it lists all of your, let's say it's like Twitter, right? It lists all of your, your tweets. And if you're logged in, and if you're not logged in, then it redirects you to the login page. So if I ask someone to tell me what what's happening when they go to the homepage, some of these junior developers will say, well, the browser looks at the main JS file and then that 
bootstraps your view app, and then that gets the view router, and that sees that it needs the homepage component. And the homepage component checks if the user's logged in and then redirects them if they're not logged in. And I'm like, you just listed you know, everything that the library is doing. Like, you haven't said anything about what the actual technology does. When in reality, the browser goes to the DNS, and I'm sorry, I'm getting way in, way in the weeds here, but the browser goes to the DNS, the DNS looks up where the IP address is, the IP address looks up where the host name is, right? That points to a server, and the server serves static assets. The server is not serving a view application with like home.view file with the view router, right? It's serving the compiled JavaScript and HTML. And if I don't see that as I'm writing code, then I'm not learning what the language actually does. And that's where, you know, I'll get off my soapbox now, but that's why things like Tailwind or Particles or Vue Tensils (laughs) paused on my own framework. I see the advantage in those because I'm still learning what the language provides as I'm writing the code. Does that make sense? (laughs) No, no, no. It it made sense. And a good alternative way to look at it when you think about junior developers, I guess, because I've been doing it for so long, I, I just appreciate the productivity boosts. And because I know how everything works under the hood, I take for granted some of that information. But you're absolutely right, because in the past when I've worked with junior developers, a lot of them just don't have the underlying understanding of what's going on. And sometimes that's critical to know that. Yeah. And I mean, I think as juniors, like you need to be able to be productive, right? You can't spend years understanding how networking systems work. But that's why I see a lot of value in things like Tailwind that as you're writing things out, you're literally writing what the CSS classes are, the CSS rules, right? So comparing to something like Bootstrap, when you learn how to compose Bootstrap classes to do to get the output that you want, at the end of the day, you've learned what Bootstrap does. And switch to Tailwind or Particles, as you compose your classes to get the UI doing what you want it to do, congratulations, you've learned what the language does because those classes map closely to what the language is, right? So, I don't know. That's my opinion. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Yeah, oh, and this is a whole discussion we could have on another episode too. So Sounds like stuff to talk about in the future. Yep, absolutely. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. All right. I'm just going to start in the order that you all appear on my screen. So uh, Dean, do you want to start us with picks? I'm actually going to ask to delay because I'm trying to open up my Trello board where I've got all my picks. All right. Let's have Lindsay try it. Okay. I have two picks. First, we were talking about the uh, composition API and I saw it in the view official newsletter that there is now a Vue CLI plugin to bring in the composition API for a Vue 2 application. And all you have to do is view add view dash next and it brings it all in for you. It does all the webpack configuration that it needs to do. The only note on that is if you're using VS Code, Vitor isn't updated yet to work with the composition API. So you're going to get some IntelliSense errors. Otherwise it's there to use. The other because we were talking about global state management, I remembered a small library I saw on Reddit a couple months ago called View Channel. And the concept is instead of having a state management like Vuex or something, it's more like uh, React Context is the best way I can think of it. So you're able to set a channel name and then you pass state into it. So you can set the username, the email address, the whatever. And then you can access that from any of the components that you have in your application. So the example they gave is view channel user info dot receive, and then you get the data from that state. So it's kind of interesting. Nice. Steve, do you have some picks for us? Yeah. So my first pick today is my nose because I like to pick it. No, I'm kidding. Kidding. That was my joke for the day. Come on. No laughs, guys. Jeez. I was on mute. It was good. Okay. Me too. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. So anyway, I'm just going to go with an old try but true little app for me that I use every day called Simple Note. When I first started looking for a notes app a number of years ago, I was using Evernote. And this is before Evernote acquired Sketch. And then Evernote came out with their limitation of, I think it's one mobile device and one computer or something like that for, for the, a free account. And they start charging me after that, uh, which is fine. That's their prerogative. And then I started hunting around and found uh, Simple Note, which is a free little note-taking app that syncs between your different devices. And it's really 
plain, pretty plain and simple. It doesn't have all the bells and whistles that Evernote does in terms of, you know, images and font stylings and all that kinds of stuff. But just for keeping little bits of information that you need here and there, uh, works really well. It's even got a, it's got an Android app as well that I use on my phone, but it's free, it's simple, and it does a really great job at keeping those simple little notes. Awesome. Devlin, do you have some picks for us? Oh, yeah, I have uh, a pick here, but I do have uh, some questions for you guys. But anyway, yeah, I just uh, read how awesome it is to have a password manager. I just read uh, the benefits of having it. But thing is, uh, I haven't heard from anyone, if any, who like has bad experience of having this password manager. So I'd like to ask you guys if you have password managers, if, you know, if you've seen any any uh, thing that can turn you off or something. Yeah, my company uh, got us all licenses for LastPass, which I've really gotten into using for both my personal stuff and, and work-related stuff. And it's real nice because it has a little uh, generate password feature. You can generate one real quick and then save it. And we use it for if we have secure bits of information uh, that we want to pass between us, such as, uh, you know, API keys or, you know, something that needs to stay internal. We'll use that to pass it back and forth as a secure uh, shared component to it for, you know, for groups of people. But, you know, there's, uh, you can get browser plugins for it. And I have, you know, an app for the phone. All you really need to know is your master password. And then once you log in, then you can use it, you know, for form filling or for generating or, you know, getting passwords to various sites. So, you know, it's a real easy way to have a distinct password for for your different logins instead of trying to remember a whole bunch of them or even being really naughty and sharing the same password across multiple sites. Now that I think about it, one of the things that LastPass does is if it detects that you have shared the password, you know, across multiple apps or sites that will give you a warning and say, hey, you're sharing this one. You might want to change it. Okay, I see. Yeah, I use LastPass. And it's nice because uh, if I need my team to sign into anything like, say, a Twitter account or something, we Uh can just share the passwords that way. They're not perfect, but it's by far the most convenient. And yeah. Yeah, I think I got to have one also. (laughs) Thanks, guys. I use LastPass and... Um, I've actually been looking at some alternatives. So I use Firefox as my main personal browser, and they have a new service called Lockwise that looks really good. And if you, when you log into your Firefox account, it just like has all your passwords there. If you don't use Firefox, there's also Bitwarden, which I've like looked at a bunch of them. And something that was really important for me is that it has to sync across multiple devices and have a browser extension because that's what LastPass has, and I'm not giving that up. But Bitwarden looks like a really good alternative to LastPass as well. And uh, Steve, one one quick note, or any user using password managers, I guess, is LastPass has this feature where you can like securely share with someone. So they have access to autofill your password, but not view it or copy it. That's actually not secure. So if someone shares a private password with me through LastPass, I will be able to access it. And I just want to point that out to anyone that thinks that that's a secure way. And just if you're going to share your password, just assume that the person can view it. Oh, well, in our use case, we want people to be able to see it. So, you know, it's not like we're trying to hide it or anything like that because it's internal for, you know, whatever, for our devs uh, or other infrastructure people within the company. So... That hasn't been yeah, and that's fine. It's just a, if, if you're fine sharing a password that people can actually see, good. It's, it's great for that, but just a, a word of caution. Does it notify you if, you, if somebody, uh, you know, use your login for some reason? Yeah. I mean, on, on the level of uh, the password manager, because by you default, uh, yeah, by default, for example, Google will notify you if somebody has your password and, you know, yeah, use it for logging in. So uh, does Password Manager has that also, like a notification feature? Well, so Google knows where your most frequent IP addresses are that you access your account from. So when you log in and they see something that's kind of an anomaly, then they'll notify you. A Password Manager doesn't track, I mean, I don't think it would make sense for them to track for every single password that you have, what the IP addresses are that you usually log in with. And Mm -hmm. so with that in mind, it would assume 
that every time anyone logs in with your password, that is you. Mm, I see. Otherwise, it would notify you every time you log in with your own password as well. Yeah, the only other thing that I've run into with this is the two-factor authentication on LastPass. They have their Authenticator app, and I had to move it to a new phone. And for some reason, it didn't transfer the two-factor authentication. And I don't have a way to remove the old phone and put the new phone in. And so I have to do it all by text now, which isn't terrible. But Austin, have you ever seen or heard of Buttercup other than the Princess Bride? I did see Buttercup. I was like, look, I was considering it for some reason, but I think that one of the password manager requirements that I have is it probably has to be cloud-based because there's some that are local and then whatever, but I don't want my passwords just to be stuck on the one computer that I'm using them on. Yeah, I remember I heard a podcast with one of the authors at least a couple of years ago, and I've always looked at it. I sort of tried it, but never really got too deeply, but I thought there was ways that you could... store it and share it on the cloud like Dropbox or something like that. That's just off the top of my head, but it could be wrong. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. I think that was like a little bit too far. Like I don't want to do too much setup if I have to put it. Like there's like this thing called uh, key pass, I think that you could have like your, your pass file stored on a local drive and then have that with Dropbox sync to every other computer. And that's just too much. <laughs> anyway, Austin, we can hear you now. Do you want to do some picks? Yeah, sure. Sorry about before. So I have some picks. Let's see. The first one is going to be a website called inclusive-components.design. It's by this guy named Hayden. And it's really excellent. He goes through how to write very accessible components and not just the markup on how to write them, but why you want to write them this way and which concerns you have to take into account. And then he'll go through having little examples with uh, little code pen examples that are like React components. So you could even just copy and paste them. After that, I'm going to pick my my work laptop is awesome. It's the Aces ZenBook 14. It's a little 14-inch laptop. but So it's a 14-inch screen, screen that fits onto a 13-inch laptop. So the thing is like tiny, super lightweight, and has really awesome specs. I think right now it's under $1,000. I've got it running dual booting like Ubuntu which is great. I love it. It's super fast. Um, it really also has this, well, oh yeah, if, you, if you're interested, if you're in the market. And then my last pick is the book that I'm currently reading is Permanent Record. It's the biography of Edward Snowden. And I think it was a really interesting and fascinating person in our recent U.S. history, regardless how you feel about his decision. The book is entertaining. And if, you, if you're in a techie sort of background, reading about his background has been a lot of fun and interesting. So I've been enjoying it. He's a really excellent writer. Nice. Dean, what are your picks? Yeah, so um got two picks today. My technical pick is a project management suite called Git Scrum. I'm always trying to find better ways to be productive and being a freelancer, I need to track my time and that kind of stuff. And Git Scrum has built in time tracking. It also also kind of mixes both Scrum and Kanban. So depending on what you prefer. It's pretty good. Yeah, so far I've enjoyed using it. So that's my technical pick. Non-technical pick is the Tolkien movie, which is um, a biography of uh, Tolkien and very interesting. Watched it the other day and really enjoyed it. So, yeah. Yeah, that was a great movie. I enjoyed that one. Yeah, I need to see that one. That's what it's called, the Tolkien movie? Or is there a... Just Tolkien. Tolkien. Oh, just Tolkien, right. Okay, gotcha. So I'm going to throw out a couple of picks. One is a book that I read over the Christmas break. It's called Ready, Fire, Aim. And it's a business book, and it kind of walks you through the stages that businesses go through as they grow. Anyway, I've, I've really been enjoying it. I kind of want to just go back through it again or get the Kindle version and kind of grind through it that way because it was, it was really, really good and gave me a lot of terrific ideas as far as, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little ahead worrying about this thing. I need to focus more on these other things. At my stage with devchat.tv, the focus is definitely sales. And so, yeah, just looking at that and going, okay, you know, let's focus on this. It it was was really, really terrific book. So I'm going to pick that. And then my wife got me a board game for Christmas and we've been playing it a ton. It's called Legendary. It's a deck building game. So if you've played like uh, Harry Potter Hogwarts Battles, which I should also pick. So count that as a pick too. 
it's kind of the same deal where you have a board in the middle of the the table and then you're you're building a deck and then fighting villains legendary is based on marvel and so you basically start out with cards from superheroes and they've got a whole bunch of expansions because it's been out for like seven or eight years so yeah i i really enjoy that so i'm going to pick that that's pretty much uh my picks thanks everybody for coming and thanks for making this awesome for 100 episodes i also want to just you know put out a thank you to our past hosts and guests and yeah we'll be back with another episode of views on view next week so uh yeah enjoy that and max out good see you guys adios see ya bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more